Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Now Where Were We? Bob Cryer here. It's hard to believe that I'm actually saying these words, but as many of you will already know, my father Barry Cryer died last month on the 25th of January. In fact, I'm recording this introduction in the week that his funeral takes place. He was 86, the epitome of a life well lived. As the old cliche would have it, it was a shock but not a surprise, and I'm pleased to say that our dear Baz died peacefully, in good spirits, and with all of us around him. In fact, my family and I, Mum Terry, brothers Tony and Dave, and my sister Jack, who you can hear on the theme tune to this podcast as part of The Kites, along with our husband Matt and great friend Mark, all of us thought long and hard about when to release the final two conversations in this series, We decided to leave enough time to get our heads around the fact that he was gone, but not so long that the need to celebrate his unique spirit waned. Although there's very little chance of that happening anytime soon. So here, in fact, is the very last recording that we made, incredibly just a month before Dad died. The effervescent polymath Giles Brandreth takes to the pub chair on this occasion, and perhaps inevitably, fate conspires to prompt a chat about death and funerals. An ironic twist Dad would have loved. However, we kicked off by asking Giles where his love of storytelling came from. To be honest, I was brought up by my father loved a good story. And he was brought up on a, he was a lawyer, and he told endless stories about great lawyers. He was brought up in Liverpool, uh, and the hero when he was a boy was somebody called F.E. Smith. Barry may have heard of F.E. Smith. I nodded then, didn't you I? Did. You did. Not either waking up or acknowledging <laughs> that F.E. Smith, the first, off. Go on. <laughs> first Earl of Birkenhead, who was the Lord Chancellor at the beginning of the 20th century and famous for his cross-examinations in court. He was the one who, pointing at the accused, said... At the time of the alleged offence, the accused was drunk as a judge. At which point the judge leaned forward and said, I think you'll find, Mr. Smith, the expression is drunk as a lord, said F.E. Smith, as your lordship pleases. (laughs) Oh, lovely. So my father loved telling stories like that. And so I was brought up on anecdotes. Barry and I belong to a radio generation, first and foremost, and then a television generation. But my father was an Edwardian, born before the era of radio, certainly before television, before the talking pictures. And for him, entertainment was in the parlour. Yes. He and yeah. his sisters and brother, they learnt poems, they played games in the parlour. And when they grew up, they went out to dinner. And after dinner, there was somebody who stood up, who wasn't a stand-up comic, who was possibly somebody like... in in their case, a middle-class family, would be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, a professional person who then entertained 
And that's what entertainment was. Yeah, but in this lockdown era, I think the more you talk to other people, they've been craving people and company, you know, during lockdown. The atmosphere in my local pub when we started rejoining each other, groups of people, was amazing, the atmosphere. People had missed it, this one-to-one contact with people. Nothing to do with text and email or anything, but real. When I began going out, I mean, I I tour the country and I do a kind of one-man show. In fact, the current one is about theatre, theatre stories. Uh, And uh, I would just go on when I first went on and said, welcome back to live theatre. And you could coast on the applause yeah. from those very words for several minutes. Yes. People were just so the sheer happy, relief. happy to, just so happy to be there. And they didn't mind. I mean, they were always, they were, my, my tour was scheduled and then rescheduled, then scheduled again. There were always gaps in the audience, even though it was a sellout. This is because people had died um, in the interim. But nobody seemed to mind that. Two days ago, as we speak, I did a, a, a show and a, an audience there of a certain age. But they got every reference. They sang along when you sang, and it, the, the, the joy in the room was amazing. People don't believe this, but one of the gigs that I do, and I'm sure Barry has done them as well in his time, is I host a lot of award ceremonies. And because I have family who are undertakers, the Kenyans are part of my lineage. They did Queen Victoria's funeral. Uh, Because of that, I was invited about 20 years ago to host the British Funeral Directors Awards. And it went really quite well. And I've done it ever since. And people think when I tell this story that it's a gag. And it isn't. It's for real. (laughs) On an annual basis, I do this. And during the day, and I've done it for the first time again, during lockdown, there was no award ceremony, but it began again about a month ago. And they have a trade fair during the day. And normally they do it at the Hotel Russell in Russell Square. They've since renamed the hotel. It's gone a bit up market, so they've moved it elsewhere. But it's during the day as a trade show. So there all the coffins are on display, little uh, cremation kits with puffs of smoke. <laughs> uh, slightly disconcerting, sitting in the coffins, in the caskets, are, are models. And, and now with, of course, a huge diversity among the models as they sit to show that they're where they should be in terms of you know diversity. And there, there they are in the models. And then in the evening, you have the award ceremony. And I have to tell you, it was a joy to do it this year because it may have been rough for other people, but the funeral industry, they've had one of their best ever years. Yeah. I mean, honestly, <laughs> uh, you couldn't begrudge it because they've given superb service under trying circumstances. They were they had a hell of a night. They've had a hell yeah. of a good year. But is it is it also a bit like doctors, that the black humour in that industry? Absolutely. Yeah. When, when you oh, get yeah. your award, for example, normal award ceremony, you go up from the stage, you collect your trophy and you return to your seat. That's how you get your award, not the funeral directors. There you collect, you go onto the stage, collect your trophy, and then you're expected to shuffle to the back of the stage, going backwards, where the curtains open and you and disappear through, behind them. Yes. Yeah, truly. And the two big prizes at the end of the evening, and this is not a gag, it's for real. The two big prizes at the end of the evening, one is for the crematorium of the year, known as the creme de la creme award. And the other is the Lifetime Achievement Award for thinking outside the box. Uh, joke alert. Of course. Joke alert. Good. Taxi driver driving along, the passenger in the back seat wants to uh, tell him something, so he reaches forward and taps his shoulder, and the driver went, ah! He said, why do you do that? He said, sorry, I used to drive a hearse. <laughs> 
I love it. You're going to give us another one. I would now retreat through the curtains. <laughs> no, I haven't got another Undertaker. I would like one. to begin at the beginning with you, Barry. Let's Before yes. we talk about the radio entertainers who formed my culture, I, I'm thinking coming here today to, to meet up with you, I was thinking, why am I the person I am? And I realized one of the reasons is in the 1950s when I was a little boy, I had a crystal radio set. Yes. And I listened to the light program and the home service on this crystal radio set. And so I was brought up on the voices of people like Cicely Courtnidge and Jack Halbert. Yes. Of course, people like Arthur Askey, Ted Ray. Yes. Uh, Siddle Fletcher, people that later, you know, you worked with. Tommy Handley. Tommy Handley. Itmar. Itmar, yes. all of that. And then a little bit later in the 1950s, Jimmy Edwards. Uh, yes. Take it from here. Kenneth Williams, Frankie Howard. My sense of humor was formed as a child listening. What formed your, you're a generation earlier than me, what formed your sense of humor? Exactly what you've just been saying. The radio, radio was king. And uh, during the Second World War, the three heavyweights, obviously Winston Churchill, the great orator leading us through the war, J.B. Priestley doing his postscripts, and Tommy Handley, a comedian who had his radio show, which the nation that listened to, you could walk down the street that had windows open and you'd hear Itmar, it's that man again, on the radio. It was just amazing the status that man had during the war. I was delighted. It was a testament to our business that a comedian was up there with the prime minister and a great writer, you know, but uh, part of the institution. Radio was king. Of course it was. And is that where you wanted to begin, when you, when you decided that this was the world for you, the world of comedy? I had a half-baked idea of being a, a journalist, nothing to do with show business. And talking of family, my dad died when I was five. I had no role model. I hardly knew the man. And Bob Mortimer's, who hasn't written a book recently, Bob Mortimer said his dad died when he was seven. And he said, I realized I wanted to please people when he died. And I have to admit that when my dad went, I hardly knew the man, as I said, I got nobody to show off to. Oh, look at me, Dad. Look what I'm doing, Dad. So I confess, I think I must have decided I wanted to show off. Your surrogate fathers were, were on the radio. Yes, yeah. But it, no, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write. But I was a failure at university. BA England failed. Uh, and they made me honorary doctor of arts. Which university was this? Leeds. You got into Leeds University. Yes. But you didn't stay and then the they course. kicked me out. Yes. Because I was chasing girls and I was in the bar. I confess. You and did also get a gig, a professional gig, didn't you? After that? Well, a man came up to Leeds to see somebody and saw me in the student show, charity show, the Rag Review, and uh, offered me work. I couldn't believe what was happening. And then I made my professional debut in the City Varieties Theatre in my hometown. And television was now on the march, and the musicals of variety theatres were suffering. So they, they introduced strippers, so they lost the family audience. My first job was in my hometown, bottom of the bill, with strippers at the City Varieties Theatre. I appeared with strippers too. When I was in my early 20s and I thought I wanted to be a comedian, I got my agent to get me a gig with Bernard Manning, 
Oh, at his club in Manchester, and it was a baptism the of fire. The Embassy Club, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, for a start, which people will find amazing now, the room was full of smoke. Everyone was allowed to smoke, so yeah. you couldn't actually see the audience. And Bernard didn't, he didn't, there were dressing rooms, and I shared a dressing room with the stripper, who was a, a lady who seemed to me to be old enough to be my mother. I think she was only in her mid to late 30s, but I was very young. And she was very nice. And she made me, uh, she had a, a stick of, a pritch stick of glue, and she put it on her bottom, the glue, and asked me to help put the spangles onto her bottom. Because she said at her age she needed that as a kind of, in the lights, it, it shimmered and it drives the guys It's just wild. like Blue Peter. Uh, well, it was, a, yes. So, so I, I, I did do that. And I was very grateful, actually, for the topless go-go girls, because the stripper had an act of her own. But when I was on, Bernard really, I think, to save me, had the go-go dancers come on at the same time. So at least there was something for people to, to look at. What, they was your, what was your act at that time? Well, my act was, I came on with a briefcase and um, in a, wearing a suit. And I was a kind of joke southerner. I was about 22, 23. Bernard, I have to say, his material was awful. It was reprehensible. It was terrible stuff. You wouldn't allow it now. But he was funny. Yes. He knew how to make them laugh, and he took them by the scruff of the neck, and he taught me several things. One of the things he taught me was to slow down. He said, don't gabble it, and when, yeah. they, when they get louder, you go quieter. You're in charge. Just take your time. Do what you've got to do. Alexis Sales said of Bernard Manning, he said, brilliant comedian with deplorable material. Yeah. He was a brilliant comedian. Yeah. And say, oh, and there was a wonderful story about the Embassy Club. He would book, as you know, uh, comedians and acts, obviously, and he'd stand at the back listening. Mm. But uh, there was a sort of whitewashed wall. And this is bizarre, but it's recorded at the time. He had a black pen, and if he wanted to nick a joke from somebody or something in the rat, he'd make a little note on the wall. It was quite bizarre. And this went round the business about him writing on the wall. Somebody broke in one night and whitewashed the wall. <gasps> they whitewashed his writing off. Ooh. What do you charge somebody with? You are charged with whitewashing a wall. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> he used to make little notes on the wall. But you've always been good about that, Barry, saying that the material is just loaned for a while. Because I, I felt very guilty one day, when I, again, when I was very young, I was talking about arriving late for an event. And I said, um, the reason I'm late is I came on the underground and I got to the escalators and I saw this sign saying dogs must be carried yes. on the escalator. Took me 40 minutes to find one. <laughs> so yes. I'd first heard Harry Worth tell this story. <laughs> and this was some charity benefit a few years later. I was still very young. And I was telling this story and I suddenly saw there was Harry Worth sitting in the audience. Oh, boy. And he came up afterwards. I thought he was going to, he was going to tell me off. But he said, well done. He said, I think I got that one from Dan Lino. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Still the derivation. The yeah. And people uh, often said to me, I told one of your jokes last night. I said, you're welcome. I didn't write them. They're public property. You know, I don't claim they're mine. Some comedians uh, do say, you told one of my jokes last but night. But you always, you always attribute, you always say, <laughs> Arthur Askey told me this story. Yeah. Now, is that one of the features also of the raconteur, the anecdote? Now, that you the, say the, There's a reason for doing that, which was explained to me by Ned Sherrin. I was doing my 
whatever it was. And Ned said to me afterwards, it's very good, Giles. Your predecessor as editor of the Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes. Correct. Indeed. Ping! Um, thank you. Thank you for the plug. Uh, absolutely. Ned Sherin, great raconteur, a most delightful and amusing man, a producer and a writer, a director. Anyway, Ned said to me, Giles, this is strong stuff, but can I help you? Get the laughs. I said, I'd be very, very grateful. He said, that line of yours, if you said before it, as Oscar Wilde said, comma, and then say the line, they will be expecting it to be funny and they'll laugh more. So if you herald yeah. the line by giving it provenance, you're going to give yourself an advantage. Yeah. yeah. You work with Ned quite a bit. Down oh, yes. Yeah. We were doing uh, a show and uh, Kit Thacker, I think the director, gave us, uh, it's an off you go on the Saturday. We'll see you on Monday. And we all went, oh, we'll be, we're off home. And Ned was doing his show that night at this particular theatre where he worked from A to Z, oh. working his way through. So kids thought, oh, I'm going to stay and watch Ned Sherin. And uh, he said he was watching it. He said great anecdotes and stories about people he'd known and worked with and everything. And uh, at the interval... He met another mate and uh, said to his mate, hey, are you enjoying the show? And his mate said, I'm loving it. He said, I believe the second half is all about uh, live heterosexuals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He certainly, I mean, <laughs> he, he certainly did tell a great story. And he lived, oh, a, he's a, lived a great He and I wrote a show together. We did a, wrote a sitcom together, uh, which didn't get very far. It was going to start Peter Ustinov. And in the last minute, Peter Ustinov withdrew, and we had somebody else do it, which wasn't oh, so successful. Well, because when people think of raconteurs, Ustinov's name comes up more often than, than most, and yes. he, he fits that model beautifully. Yeah, and the problem now is there isn't the room on television, there might be on radio, for the raconteur. There isn't the time right. for it. Uh, Graham Norton, who's the most wonderful host and a lovely fellow, gives you the most time that is currently available. Yeah. But that's still not very long. If you think of the long-form interviews that somebody like Michael Parkinson used oh, to do exactly. in the 60s and 70s, he could have Peter Usnoff on for 50 minutes. Yeah. Just And with some of the stories told by somebody like Peter Usnoff, it takes eight minutes <laughs> for the story to get yes, going. Because he plays all 20 characters And he as had well. uh, Billy Connolly on 11 times, I think. He said, if we looked at what, what are we going to do this week, and it was a bit thin and everything, oh, book Bill again. Graham Norton, I quite agree. But people are just on to plug something now. Yeah, exactly. They've got their record, their film, their blah, blah, blah. Parky was talking to... He had two separate shows he was still doing, looked after by his son. One was The Musicians. I mean, Duke Ellington, Fats, the people he interviewed. Yeah. Yeah. And the other was just uh, the famous people. It was a real conversation. They weren't just there to plug something. I was talking to someone about this the other day, and they said one of the features of modern life is that you everything is documented. So you know everything about every celebrity that you want to know. Whereas in the 70s, when Parkey was interviewing someone like Bette Davis, that would be the only chance, the only glimpse into their life that you would get. And it was a conversation. I was lucky enough, amazingly, when I was at school, the founder of my school was still alive. My school, a place called Beedales in Hampshire, was founded in 1893. And the man who founded it, John Badley, was a friend of Oscar Wilde, the playwright, <laughs> author of The Importance of Being Honest. And Oscar Wilde's eldest son was sent to this school. And when I went to the school in the 1960s, this old gentleman who'd founded the school was still alive coming up to 100. So I knew a man who was a friend of Oscar Wilde. 
So when we shake hands today, you're shaking the hand that shook the hand that held the pen that wrote The Importance of Being Earnest. But the point is this. <laughs> Mr. Badley told me what Oscar Wilde was like. And I said, was he indeed the greatest talker of his time? As Bernard Shaw said, the greatest talker of all time. And Mr. Badley said, yes, he was. But he was better than that. He was a great conversationalist. And people thought he yeah. was so witty because he gave you time to be witty too. Oscar Wilde said, that when it comes to a conversation, the art is the listening, the craft is the talking. Yeah. Wasn't was it due to take. you, I met Merlin Holland? You did. It the was The grandson. Yeah. Yeah. Of Oscar Wilde. Who is still yeah. alive and only my, my sort of yes. age. Yeah. Um, Oscar Wilde died in 1900 and he had two sons, uh, one of whom uh, tragically died at the beginning of the Second World War, the other of whom lived on, married late and had Merlin Holland, who is now the world authority on Oscar Wilde, lives in France, a delightful person and can manage to look a little uncannily like Oscar in the right. But that show they did, Merlin in the first half... Yeah. talking about uh, his grandfather and everything. And the second half was an enactment of the famous oh, trial. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's a brilliant show, that. It, it's a tragedy for Oscar Wilde that he is remembered through the prism of his downfall. Yes. Because, well, because I knew this man who was the headmaster of my school and the founder of the school, and I was a schoolboy, he never talked to me about the scandal. He only introduced me to Oscar Wilde, this amazing brilliant playwright who wrote probably the funniest play written in the 19th century. And we now see him through what went wrong in 1895 when he was imprisoned uh, for two years, sent to Reading Jail. And every movie that's made about him, brilliant film recently made by Rupert Everett, earlier the one yes, with Stephen yeah. Fry, great films, but it's the trial and the downfall that people focus on. And they forget this delightful, brilliant, charismatic figure who for the first 40 years of his life was the talk of the town. There'd be three plays on at once, wouldn't there, often? Ab with, absolutely. Uh, he was just superb. I asked this old gentleman, I said, what's the funniest thing you remember Oscar Wilde saying to you? He said, well, I do remember him saying that you should never commit murder. I said, why should you never commit murder? He said, you should never commit murder because a gentleman should never do anything he cannot talk about at dinner. Oh, God. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Why did you decide to be, having tried being a stand-up 
yourself. Not that it was called that. In those days, you were a comedian. And interestingly enough, there were gentleman comedians as well as working class comedians. Yes. And people were of a stereotype. You were a Scottish comedian, a Lancashire comedian. Yes. Uh, or a gentleman comedian, something like... Stainless Stephen was a one yes. of... <laughs> Extraordinary. What kind of comedian did you think you were going to be? And why did it then change into you being a writer of com- comedian? I had no material? plan. My whole life was a series of incidents. So I don't think I saw any direction I wanted to go in. I just thought, I hope there's another job. And I told you I had this half idea of being a journalist. And then one thing led to another. And I found myself script writing. And of course, that was. After writing the nightclub shows for Danny LaRue, David Frost saw a little thing I'd written in a review at the Fortune Theatre for Anna Quayle, the actress, and said, who wrote that? And uh, one thing led to another. David Frost came to Danny LaRue's club and everything, and you become one of the Frost gang. And, of course, all doors were open then. You could have been... A rubbish writer, well, he wouldn't have taken you on board, I suppose, but if you were known as a David Frost writer, everybody wanted to know. I called him a practising catalyst. He was brilliant with people. He was actually a brilliant person, and it's interesting how he's not as well-remembered as I oh, think he no. ought to I be. Oh, no, I mean, helped to bring down an American president, for God's yeah. sake. Well, there is that movie. That will be one of his legacies, yeah. the Frost yes. Nixon movie. Got but he was, he was a great enabler of people. I mean, he, he loved going to see Dana LaRue. And because of Dana LaRue, now we hear about you, Barry. Yeah. But of course, Ronnie Corbett was That's very right. much somebody he discovered at Dana LaRue's club. You were yes. both hired at the same time. And Ronnie was in a show uh, called Twang, which sadly was the last uh, Lionel Bart show. And it was, uh, it well, was a flop. Sadly. It was about Robin Hood. Hence <laughs> That's the right. Title, Twang. That's right. Bow, bow and but arrow. Ronnie Corbett said I was able to do Frost shows because I was in this flop. He said, if it had been a success, I wouldn't have been available to do the Frost shows. He said, you never know how your life's going to turn out. He said, it's just weird. But Ronnie said a thing to me once, and it made me think. He said, I'm always Baz. He said, I don't know what rung of the ladder you're on, Baz, but stay there. He said, you're always around, but nobody's pointing at you. (laughs) But I tell you what was great about David Frost is he always did his own phone calls. If if he yes. wanted somebody, he phoned up personally. That's right. And that's how he got everybody and anybody. He and never he, said to a PA, please do that, or to a producer. He did it himself. And he remembered where he last met you. Yep. He remembered your wife, husband's partner's name. A joy, a joy. A joy. <laughs> Barry, a baz, a joy. He became joy. such a massive figure at one stage. He had an open-top convertible car, and uh, the joke was at the time, when it started raining, David would press a button on the dashboard and it stopped raining. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And he lived on Concord doing two series at once, yes. one in England, one in America. Nobody since. The man was amazing. That was bad for his health because he used to take pills to go to sleep yeah. and pills to wake up. And I remember in the 1980s, he was one of the founders of TVAM, Breakfast Television Station, uh, and I used to be a sort of one of his sidekicks on a Sunday morning, the Sunday when he turned up and he'd taken the wrong pill. He'd woken up and taken 
thinking he was taking the wake-up pill. He'd taken the go-back-to-sleep pill. And we got him out of the Bentley and into the make-up chair, and we were pouring water onto him. We were pouring coffee into him. We carried his body, literally carried it into the chair, and the music was playing, and literally it was 10, 9, 8, 7. And suddenly, when he got to a 4, 3, 2, 1, hello, good morning, and welcome. Yeah. Suddenly from the grave, this That's body right. a sort of yeah. sat up. Yeah. Um, he was he was remarkable. He was a one-off. Later stages of his career, there were some ups and downs, and it was Yorkshire Television, I think. He did a nostalgia show, Radio Nostalgia, uh, and he had a, an impressionist called... Uh, oh, he had Stainless Stephen on, who was a great age then. Peter Kavanagh, who was a brilliant impressionist, and Peter Bruff and Archie Andrews. Oh. The ventriloquist, a ventriloquist on radio, I mean, for a start. And Peter Bruff would cheerfully acknowledge it. You could see his mouth moving. He wasn't technically brilliant. And it worked on radio, obviously. So he, this is up in Leeds. And uh, I was there working on the show. And uh, Peter arrived and uh, said, Oh, I've got a uh, a dinner jacket and everything, David. And Frosty said, No, it's casual, it's early evening. And Peter Bruff said, no, I need a bow tie to cover the Adam's apple because they'll see my mouth moving. You couldn't make it up. Anyway, on the night, the doll, Archie, got lockjaw. (laughs) (laughs) And we were in the gallery looking at this. The director couldn't do anything for laughing. You had a ventriloquist whose mouth moved and a doll whose (laughs) mouth didn't. I mean, it was wonderful. And Peter Kavanagh was doing an impression of Frankie Vaughan, who was a big star at the time. Peter Kavanagh in life wore an orangey-brown, awful toupee. It was obviously a toupee. To do an impression of Frankie Vaughan, he donned a black toupee on top of it and then a straw boater, a hat. He looked like a block of flats. (laughs) I've never worked on a show where there was so much mirth in the gallery. The director said... I'm trying to do my job here, so I can't do it for laughing. <laughs> they all belonged to the toupee generation. You don't see that now. No. They all had little, a little hairpiece at the yes. front, didn't they? I mean, I Frankie remember, Howard, perhaps. Oh, well, oh, oh, no, 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 Mrs. No, or Frank, as people who knew him called oh, him. Oh, yes, yes. He had to be called Frank. Oh, yes. Frank was one of those who was sort of serious off. And, oh, very much so. Uh, and a little bit too much so. Um, yes. That's funny enough, I was thinking uh, about our late great friend Lionel Blair. Yes. Uh, who was, unlike many entertainers, he was fun off as well as on. Oh, he's a bullient man. Uh, permanently a bullient, whereas a lot of them were managed to be amusing on, but off could be a little bit down. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> and, for those, and for those listening at home, uh, we are speaking on the day after Lionel passed as well. So you've passed. If he passed, he could pop in. Dear, he died. <laughs> died. He died. I'm just um, quoting the. Not Duke. a fan of the euphemism. Not a fan of the euphemism. He passed. <laughs> he passed. Uh, but he did. He's he's gone up to heaven. He's not passing. He's if he's going yes. anywhere. He's up in heaven, and he'll be so happy because he'll be there dancing with uh, Fred Astaire and his, Fred's sister yes, Adele and Sammy Davis Jr. He was he was fun, uh, Lionel, and I loved his stories. He was quite a raconteur. Yes, um, yeah. And he told amazing stories about going on holiday, for example, to Spain at the beginning of the 1950s. He was a very good-looking young man, and he ended up uh, on holiday with Ernest Hemingway 
and Errol Flynn. Can you picture this? Lionel Blair, Ernest Hemingway, Errol Flynn. But better than that... Together at last. Mrs. Errol Flynn took a shine to young Lionel. And Errol Flynn by then had lived the full life to some extent and wasn't perhaps delivering on the... Anyway, on every front. <laughs> Got so, the picture, yes. So Lionel was called into despite, action. Despite the rumours. Uh, exactly. And uh, I think Lionel and Mrs. Edelflynn got on famously. But that's not how you picture Lionel Blair. Not quite. Well, yeah. But I am now. You are, you are now. <laughs> I make these maddening connections. A brilliant Dick Bosborough I worked with a lot and wrote. He gave everything a title. And we were on the Ross Abbott show weird looking back but we did a bullfighting sketch and dick called it beef encounter oh i love it <laughs> does that frustrate you that you wouldn't be able to do a bullfighting <laughs> sketch now there's so much no exactly i, I was watching a, a, a clip on youtube uh, of, of benny hill the opening of his show do you remember where he would run around the garden yes. chasing these scantily clad uh, young but models. they were usually chasing him, weren't they? Boss, even worse. I mean, the point is now he would be arrested. Oh, uh, yes. And I, I want you to know that I watched this on YouTube on somebody else's computer, <laughs> just in case. In his earlier days, black and white television, for heaven's sake, playing every character on the screen, he was brilliant. Mm -hmm. I even heard him uh, on the radio, on uh, Radio 4 Extra. This man was brilliant. And Eric and Ernie did a famous sketch where they're preparing breakfast just to the music of the stripper, yeah. no dialogue. Benny Hill did people in a kitchen, no dialogue, working to music. Mm. Rowan Atkinson did uh, reading out a list of names, pronouncing them very eccentrically to the audience. Benny Hill did that. David Renwick wrote a brilliant mastermind sketch where Ronnie Corbett was answering the question before. Benny Hill played a man being interviewed who was answering the wrong question. And then, of course, he became Mr. Tits and Ass and everything in America. But I always speak up for him because I'm old. I said the earlier Benny Hill was just brilliant. Yeah. And that's another feature of the, anec the anecdote and the raconteur is restoring justice to, uh, uh, to greats of the past, as we've been saying. We've had Oscar Wilde and David Frost and as you've been saying, Giles, how we've forgotten how brilliant these people were. Can I say how and thrilled? And an anecdote about these people is a way of remembering them. Uh, indeed. No one is forgotten until their name is mentioned for the last time. And I think David Frost would be rather thrilled to be mentioned with the same breath as Oscar Wilde. I said to David once, what do you want to be remembered for? He replied immediately, ever. Oh. <laughs> but I don't think, what is amusing about David is I said, oh, that's brilliant. He said, oh, it's not my line, Neil Shand. And then he, oh, produ yes. he yeah, produced yeah. a folder. He produced a folder in his office at TVAM. And uh, I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the airport now. And he, and he showed me the folder. And on the front of the folder, it said, airport quips. And yes. these were lines <laughs> that had been prepared for him, I think by Neil Shand, of, of little amusing things that he could say to people at the airport. Yes. Oh, Not necessarily for, for broadcast, yeah. just right. sort of uh, amusing, you know. Ever, ever prepared. Yeah. Can I ask Barry just one more question? Uh, and, and it's this. Do you think, you having been a writer and a performer, for you, is the writing what made the difference in your life? Or is the performing? I mean, have you had your kicks out of hearing your material used by the real masters or the kicks being when you yourself have been out there doing it? A bit of both because I'm just greedy. I, I relax when I'm 
and I've done it twice recently, very lucky. I relax when I'm on stage because I think these people are the mates. This is a party, it isn't a show. So I enjoyed that. But what you referred to earlier, I also got enormous satisfaction when you heard Eric and Ernie doing something you'd written. I, I wrote almost my first book was a biography of the great Victorian entertainer, Dan Leno. Forgotten now, Mary Lloyd, who he performed with, is still remembered, but Dan Leno, hardly remembered. He was known as the funniest man on earth. When he died, the funeral line was 14 miles long and it was six yes. people deep throughout yeah. it. Front page of the Daily Mirror, Dan Leno is dead. Almost completely forgotten now. But I looked at his material, at what he was doing. And people are today doing sketches, uh, gags, that Dan Leno was doing 130 years oh, ago. Right. And he was doing material that he'd inherited from generations before. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was doing physical gags that Joseph Grimaldi, the original <laughs> clown Joey, was doing in about 1815. So the joy for you, Barry, is that you're just one of the great contemporaries. You, Joey Grimaldi, <laughs> Dan Leno, you're all, all of the same generation. Aristophanes. Very I mean, similar, very yeah. similar. But any great idea, you always, uh, you always say, somebody brilliant, you don't know, but you're sure somebody brilliant did this years ago. I haven't just thought of it. It's popped out of my head and it's, you know, David Renwick said to me, he didn't think he'd invented the idea of answering the wrong question. He was fascinated here about Benny Hill. But David delightfully said, no, I didn't think of the idea. I said, but you you, boy, you wrote it brilliantly. The challenge for you is being a gag writer. The difference between the gag writer, the comedian, and the raconteur is the raconteur is allowed to take their time. Yes. One of the great raconteurs that I was privileged to know in my lifetime was Sir Donald Sindon. Wonderful actor, great fruity voice. But he could tell you a story. Yes. I remember when I was trying to play Hamlet many years ago, not successfully. Um, I read it was very unsuccessful. The critics didn't like it. The audience didn't like it. I mean, they really didn't like it. They threw eggs at me, you know. Went on as Hamlet, came off as omelette. Anyway, <laughs> that's the gag. Ping! <laughs> but the, the story is this, um, that Donald Sindon told me. He said, well, when he'd played Hamlet and was very young, uh, he wanted to concentrate on the relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia. What was going on there? It's young Prince Hamlet and the fair Ophelia. How intimate are they? How close are they? And he went to see the older actor in the company, who was then playing the part of Polonius, but had himself played Hamlet many years before. And he said to this old actor, what do you think's happening between Hamlet and Ophelia? How close are they? What's going on? I mean, for example, does Hamlet sleep with Ophelia? And the old actor replied, well, I don't know about the West End, laddie, but we always did on tour. <laughs> <laughs> now, the way Sir Donald told that, yeah. he actually took you through about a half-hour history of the great people who played Hamlet in his lifetime, yes, yes. Cum culminating with that. Yeah. And that's what a raconteur can do. Uh, and it's always based in truth in real life. The digs where you were staying in this particular town for that week, and they said the comic finished up in bed with the landlady's daughter uh, on the Tuesday night. And she said this... Usually doesn't happen till Thursday. <laughs> and the co Tommy Trinder, the great comedian, said he was giving the keys to the back door. Uh, so when he got back late from the show or whatever he'd been doing, he could discreetly come in at the back. And he said he came into a darkened kitchen and the landlady was at it with somebody on the, uh, on the kitchen table. 
and he swore, she said to him, you must think I'm a terrible flirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Oh, and well, that uh, was always in the, uh, in the listings. It would say flowers provided in your room. Oh, was that a euphemism? That was a euphemism, yes. Yes, oh. and the, the notice in one dates, please note the toilet is outside. You are welcome to use the piano. <laughs> oh, please don't replace the pot under the bed after use. The steam rusts the springs. Oh. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it? Now, do you know the Max Bygrave story about the five-pound note told to me by Max's son? Oh, go on. In the days of the chamber pot. That's what made me think of it. Um, Max gave his son a five-pound note. They were staying in a hotel at the seaside, summer season. And five pound note, a lot of money in those days. And it was a beautiful white. Do you remember those old five pound notes? Yes, Large white, yes. only printed on one side. Anyway, uh, Max's boy went to bed with this five pound note. Didn't think he could put it under the pillow. Had to keep it safe. So he thought he'd pop it in the little cabinet next door to the bed. And he popped it in the cabinet, not realizing that inside the cabinet was a chamber pot. Anyway, the morning came and the little boy opened the cabinet and saw the chamber pot and found his precious five-pound note floating around in the chamber pot, which hadn't, fortunately, hadn't been emptied the previous day by the chambermaid. So it was there floating in the detritus in the chamber pot. So this poor boy picks this precious five-pound note out of the chamber pot and is sort of shaking the wetness onto the pillow when his dad comes in, Max comes in, and sees this scene, and the poor boy is terrified. And Max says, let that teach you a lesson, son. And the poor boy says, what's the lesson it's going to teach me, Dad? And Max says, it's going to teach you never to lick your fingers when you're counting your folding money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. What a note to end on. <laughs> Which brings Giles's episode to a close. Thank you to the many hundreds, and I do mean hundreds of people, that have sent messages of love and support to me and my family. It's been truly overwhelming to read such a wonderful outpouring of joy and positivity about the mark that Dad made on so many lives. Thanks also to those who've donated to the two charities we've appointed to remember him with, the Royal Variety Charity and Macmillan. Links to both are available on Dad's Twitter page, at BarryCryer80. He leaves behind him a legacy of fun, joy, love and silliness that we'll all be doing our best to maintain. As this podcast series shows, Dad regularly told fantastic stories and anecdotes about others, the many brilliant and fascinating people he'd worked with and knew. But as he was loved and admired by so many people, why don't we all start telling some more stories about Baz? And his brilliant and mischievous life and career. Dad loved making these podcasts. The truth is, though, that he really didn't have to change a thing about who he was or the way he spoke when we made them. They sort of tailored themselves to his unique wit and personality. This was Barry Cryer in his natural habitat, in his element, if you will, just swapping stories with some of his favourite people. And it's been an absolute pleasure bringing them to your ears, I'm just so happy we got to do them when we did. So until next time, when we'll be sending out the very first recording we ever made for this series, hard to think that that was back in July, we'll be heading to the country retreat of the legendary musician Joe Brown, 
A special episode of Tributes to Dad from some of the people we wanted to speak to is already in the works. So look out for that in the coming weeks. So please like, review and tell your friends so they don't miss out on that one. And to end, as Baz himself would say, same time tomorrow. I played Falstaff at school with my mate John Gledhill as Hal. And uh, I thought, oh, I've got to be fat. So I think you call it a bolster, a sort of thing. I put in the costume. And the first performance we did, that fell out of my costume and it got a big laugh. Strangely, from then on, it fell out every performance. And we were given an, an acting cup by the then Princess Royal and uh, John and I. And she presented us with this cup. And I took it off its base, gave John the base and held on to the cup. <laughs> I wince looking back now. I'm not going to laugh and I never, oh boy. I think I've got the title for my next volume of memoirs. I've just published a book about my childhood called Odd Boy Out. But my next one's going to be called I Wince Looking Back. <laughs> <laughs> 